If you have your Bibles and you'd like to uh, follow along this Lord's Day with our text, uh, turn to Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. This is simply the parallel passage to Mark chapter 8 that we had begun in the last sermon, and we have shifted in the in the text from looking at what Mark has to say to looking and considering what Matthew has to say. For what is contained here in Matthew is not contained in Mark. And uh, these are very, very important truths uh, to, to uh, consider this Lord's Day. <clears throat> Matthew 16:18 says, And I say unto thee that thou art Peter... And upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The correct or incorrect interpretation of one verse in the Bible can make the difference between a faithful church and a harlot church. Such is the case in the verse we shall consider this Lord's Day. The scriptures may be interpreted by man, or they may be interpreted by the scripture itself. Our confession of faith in chapter 1, section 9, teaches what is scripture's infallible rule of interpretation when it declares The infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture, which is not manifold but one, it must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. The Apostle Peter in 2 Peter 3.16 speaks of unlearned and unstable false teachers within the professing church who will twist the scriptures into shapes and forms to suit their own views and their own tastes. And Peter says they will do so to their own destruction. This warning is most clearly seen from our text this Lord's Day in Matthew 16:18, where the Romish church has made Peter and his supposed papal successors the rock upon which the true church is built. From the papal corruption of this passage has come the Antichrist who usurps the place of Christ by seating himself in the church of Christ and declaring himself to be the head of the visible church upon earth, as is is taught that will actually be the case in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 4. From this blasphemous teaching has proceeded corrupt doctrine, unfaithful worship, tyranny in church government, and bloody persecution of the faithful witnesses of Christ. Listen to the perverse teaching of Rome from one of her own catechisms in regard to this matter of Peter 
and his place as the rock upon which the church is built. Read from a New Catechism of the Catholic Faith, pages 26 through 27. Did Christ make any man the head of his church? Christ made Peter the head of his church. When did Christ make Peter the head of his church? Christ made Peter the head of his church when he told Peter that he would be the rock on which he would build the church and the one to whom he would give the keys of the kingdom of heaven. What authority did this give Peter? The highest teaching authority, the highest ruling authority, and the highest authority over the means of the grace of Christ. Did Christ want Peter's authority passed on to other men? Yes, because Christ wanted his church to last forever. Was Peter's authority given to other men? The authority of Peter has been passed on for 1,900 years. What men have had the authority and power of Peter? The popes of the Catholic Church. Is the Catholic Church then the only true Church of Christ? The Catholic Church is the only true Church of Christ and the only Church that has His authority. Why is the Catholic Church the only Church that has Christ's authority? According to Rome, because that authority was given to Peter and his successors. Destroy that doctrine and Rome crumbles because the apostolic succession is the basis for the authority which Rome exercises and believes that they are the true church. Remove the apostolic succession and Rome is proven to be the harlot that she is. And that the man of sin, the Pope, is proven to be the Antichrist and the usurper of Christ's divine right and prerogatives and authority that he is. Dear ones, it is a lie that Christ made Peter the head of the church, as our text from Matthew 16:18 will demonstrate. We continue the same general theme begun from the last sermon. And that theme is Christ builds his church. You'll recall that in the last sermon, <clears throat> we noted that Christ builds his church by his mighty acts of power. <clears throat> as well as by the faithful testimony of his people. This Lord's Day, we see one more means by which Christ builds his church, by means of his promises. <clears throat> In Matthew sixteen eighteen, by means of his promises. And there are specifically two promises that Christ mentions here that we'll focus our attention upon today. First of all, a promise of growth. Upon this rock I will build my church. And secondly, a promise of protection. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. 
Now, I want to just mention before I begin in the body of the sermon today that this is a sermon that will be more theological and doctrinal in nature, so follow very closely. Not as much application today. Put on your thinking caps. Be ready to engage in what is being said. Children, do the best that you can. Parents, explain the concepts to your children when you get home so they get the general idea as to what is being taught from God's Word today. And so, that promise... Uh, Christ builds his church by means of his promises is the subject of the, the sermon this Lord's Day. From our original text in Mark 8, verses 27 through 30, we saw that the Lord asked his disciples, Whom do men say that I am? That's Mark 8, 27. This he asked of all of his disciples, you'll remember, and They answered, John the Baptist, but some say Elias, and others one of the prophets, in Mark 8, 28. But the Lord then narrows the question and asks the disciples, he asks them collectively, but whom say ye, whom say ye, whom say all of you, in other words, that I am, in Mark 8, 29. To which Peter responds on behalf of the whole group, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Matthew 16, 16. At that point, we switch over to the Matthew text. The Lord then explains that such a true testimony of faith concerning His eternal sonship and concerning His divine work as anointed prophet, priest, and king is certainly an evidence of the work of God's Spirit in Peter's life giving him understanding and insight into that particular truth. It didn't come from the mere wisdom of man or the knowledge of man, but it came from God as God made real and gave Peter that understanding in Matthew 16:17. Now we arrive at our text for today in Matthew 16:18, where the Lord makes two promises. But before looking at the two promises specifically, let me note something about the promises of God in general. The promises of God made to His people are founded entirely upon His free grace in Christ Jesus. There is nothing in man that would demand or require the Most High God to make any promise of mercy, grace, or love to sinful man. In fact, if anything, our sin in Adam, our corruption of nature, and our daily personal sins call forth the infinite justice of a holy God against us. What we justly deserve is eternal misery and punishment in hell for our sin against God's holy law. But God being rich and infinitely wealthy in mercy made promises from all eternity 
to rescue undeserving sinners who were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. All those promises, dear ones, made in the covenant of redemption in eternity are realized in time in the covenant of grace as Christ purchases our salvation and applies it by His Spirit to our lives. All of His promises are realized in the covenant of grace. Dear ones, the church of Jesus Christ is not an unrelated entity to the covenant of redemption or to the covenant of grace. But rather, the church of Jesus Christ is the recipient of God's promises wherein condemned criminals on death row are united to Christ as the body is to the head. They are pardoned, declared righteous, adopted, sanctified, and glorified. Beloved, without the free promises of God who cannot lie, without the work of Christ who secured those promises for God's elect people, and without the work of the Spirit in applying those promises of God, there would be no church. The church is dependent upon the promises of God for its establishment and for its growth and for its perfection. The promises made in the covenant of redemption and in the covenant of grace. Therefore, dear ones, when family and friends seem to desert us, when affliction, hardship, and persecution become our lot in life, there is one who has promised from all eternity to stick closer than a brother. One who sympathizes with our many infirmities. Christ the Son of the living God, whom Peter professed. Promises, dear ones, are only as good as the one who makes them. For all the promises of God in Him are yea and amen unto the glory of God by us. 2 Corinthians 1.20 I ask you, where can you find more precious promises, more gracious promises, more abundant promises, or more trustworthy promises than in Jesus Christ? How the sin of unbelief is such a shame, brings such shame and dishonor to Christ and the promises He has made to us. How our own unbelief, our fears, our worries in this life, our anxieties, 
our discontentment with what God has given to us presently, our envy, our unthankfulness, our murmuring against the providence of God, how all of those sins bring shame upon the wonderful promises which God has made to us. In effect, we say, Lord, I don't really believe that those promises are going to be realized or made. There is, in some way, when we disbelieve God and His providence, when we worry and fear, unbelief has taken hold and manifested itself to such a degree that we have forgotten the promises of God made unto us. If He promises, dear ones, the wealth of heaven to us, and we have no problem believing that we will inherit that wealth, Will he not provide our daily bread? Will he not provide work for us? Will he not put clothing upon us and our children? Provide a place for us to live? And if we have these things, Paul says, with these things we can be content. Now let us consider specifically the two gracious promises made in Matthew 16:18. The first one, the promise of growth. Upon this rock I will build my church. <clears throat> After the Lord states that Peter's faithful testimony has come from God Himself, Christ directs His words to Peter in the hearing of all the disciples. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter. Matthew 16, 18. <clears throat> you see, Peter had taken the lead in making this faithful testimony on behalf of the disciples. Now the Lord speaks directly to Peter. Thou art Peter. Now, the Lord had previously given to Peter this name. In John chapter 1, <clears throat> verse 42, early on, very early on in the ministry of Christ, <clears throat> shortly after his baptism, we find these words. <clears throat> and he brought him to Jesus. That is, Andrew brought Peter, his brother, to Jesus. And when Jesus beheld him, he said, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah. Thou shalt be called Cephas, which is by interpretation a stone. Thou shalt be called Cephas. <clears throat> Here we see that Peter and Cephas are 
names which mean the same thing. Peter being from the Greek language, Petros, P-E-T-R-O-S. Very important, I spell the word for you as you will see. Petros, the masculine form of a little rock. Cephas being the Aramaic equivalent, meaning the same thing. The Lord does not refer to him as Peter, a little rock in this passage, in order to identify him with the one upon which the church will be built. That is not the purpose of the Lord saying to him, Thou art Peter, so as to identify him with the rock upon which the church is built. For no one builds a house upon a little rock, which is what the word means. No one builds a, a house upon a little rock as a foundation. Rather than identifying Peter with the rock upon which the church will be built, there is in fact a contrast between Peter the little rock and Christ the bedrock, as we shall see. Peter has given a faithful testimony here concerning Christ. But let Peter remember that he is yet only a little rock hewn out of the bedrock. Peter is to remember this, for shortly he, hereafter he will rebuke the Lord himself. In Mark 8.32. And he will even deny knowing the Lord three times. Peter is a rock, but he is a little rock. And he must not forget who is the bedrock. <clears throat> Peter is indeed a part of Christ, but he too is only a living stone that is built upon the foundation of Christ. Not only must Peter realize this, dear ones, but we must realize it about Peter and about all other faithful teachers so that we do not elevate man to the place of Christ and play the role of Antichrist, the usurper of Christ's rights and authority within his church. There's always that danger. Just as Rome has exalted man to the place of Christ, to usurp Christ's authority, so there is always the danger that we can do likewise in our heart, in our mind, in our thoughts, in our words, whether it's ourself or whether it's someone else in authority. And we must always remember that we are all, in that sense, little rocks. We are all living stones that are added and built upon the foundation of Christ. We are not the foundation. We are not indispensable. We are but little rocks and stones. After having identified Peter, or Petros, as the little rock, the Lord promises, and upon this rock I will build my church. Upon what rock? 
upon the Lord Jesus Christ, whom, whom Peter had just previously confessed as the Son of God, as the Messiah, as the anointed prophet, priest, and king. For, dear ones, the Lord intentionally moves from Peter or Petros, P-E-T-R-O-S, which is in the masculine gender, he moves from Peter to Petra, P-E-T-R-A, in the feminine gender. That is the bedrock. You say, why in the feminine gender? Well, Again, various types of nouns in the Greek language and in other languages that indicate uh, by endings or by prefixes, uh, by articles, uh, whether they're masculine, feminine, or neuter, can be used of, of in, inanimate objects. An inanimate object can be a masculine inanimate object, a feminine, or a neuter. When Jesus says, I am the vine and ye are the branches, the vine is in the feminine. And so it is not in any way detracting as if that's impossible, therefore, to say when Christ says, upon this rock, Petra, in the feminine, I will build my church, as if to say that can't refer to Christ because it's feminine. If Christ had intended Peter to be the one upon whom the church was to be built, he would naturally have said, Thou art Peter, Petros, and upon this Petros, this little rock, I will build my church. But that is not what the Lord said. The Lord alters both the word itself and the gender of the word, so that there is no confusion. Peter is not identified as being the rock upon which the church is built. He is contrasted with the rock upon which the church is built. Now, is Christ the Petra, P-E-T-R-A, the Petra, upon which the church is built, will consider the following passages. In the Old Testament, and there are many which could be mentioned, but I have nailed it down to just a few. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4, the Song of Moses, verse 3 says, Because I will publish the name of the Lord, ascribe ye greatness unto our God. Verse 4, He is the rock. His work is perfect. He is the rock. In 2 Samuel 22, 2, David <clears throat> says in this psalm that's recorded here as well as is found in the Psalter in various psalms. <clears throat> psalm 22, verse 2. And he said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. The Lord is my rock. 
Interesting, in that particular verse, the Greek word used there for rock in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrew Scriptures, is the word Petra. In Psalm 62.2, again, notice the clarity, the precision, the uniqueness. Psalm 62.2, verse 1 says, Truly my soul waiteth upon God, from him cometh my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. He only. He is alone my rock. There is none other. What about in the New Testament? Again, sampling of a few scriptures from the New Testament in Romans chapter 9, verse 33. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock, Petra, of offense. And whosoever believeth on him shall, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. The rock of offense is Christ. In 1 Corinthians 10.4, Speaking of the fathers who passed through the sea and in the wilderness, fathers in Israel, it says in verse 4, and, and did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. That Petra was Christ. 1 Peter 2.8. Now, this is significant in as much as you would think Peter got it right, at least. Nobody else did, right? That he's the rock upon which the church is built. He's the Petra. Now, Peter says, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 8. <clears throat> Speaking of Christ again. <clears throat> And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. A rock, a petra of offense. And though the word petra is not used in this verse, I think nevertheless... It's a, a very important text to, to read in this regard. 1 Corinthians 3.11 For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. <clears throat> I 
I submit to you that the testimony that Christ is the rock is overwhelming. Peter is never called a Petra anywhere else in the scripture, nor is any other man that I'm aware of. God, Jesus Christ, is called a Petra. What about Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20? An objection, a possible objection to this particular view that has been submitted. What about Ephesians 2.20? Speaking of the church, it says, And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Well, I would first have you to look carefully there because I don't see Peter distinguished from the other apostles. If that's what it is saying, that the apostles and prophets are the foundation with Christ the chief cornerstone, Notice that Peter is not distinguished and set above and placed and said to be the Petra. The foundation is there of the, of the apostles and the prophets. But furthermore, I would have you, as you look at that particular passage, <clears throat> consider, does this refer to the apostles and prophets as being the foundation of the church, or does Paul refer to Christ as the foundation of the apostles and prophets? Of the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. Well, in favor of it being Jesus Christ who is the foundation of the prophet of the apostles and prophets i would simply uh, say that the word their foundation and again another greek word uh, just to to uh, be able to identify uh, a few words here uh themelios is the word foundation, it is found in one of the verses we already looked at. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11, for other foundation, Thelemos, I'm sorry, Themelios is the word that's used here as well. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11. Well, what about in Revelation chapter 12, I'm sorry, 21, verse 14, where we find the 12 foundations of the walls of the New Jerusalem are the 12 apostles. Well, again, if Ephesians 2.20 is referring to the apostles and to the prophets as being the foundation then I would say it's not them as to their persons, but as to their teaching, their inspired teaching, which was given to the church by Christ, which speaks of Christ, which testifies of Christ. 
that would be the foundation. And you'll find amongst Reformed scholars both views that it's the teaching of the apostles and prophets with Christ the chief cornerstone that is the foundation. And you'll also find those who say, no, it is Christ himself that is the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Either way, Peter is not stated anywhere to be the foundation himself alone. Thus, dear ones, the Lord here distinguishes himself from Peter and identifies himself as the rock upon the church upon which the church is built. You know, just as the Lord said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. In John 2.19, meaning the temple of his own body. So likewise, he says here, and upon this rock I will build my church, meaning himself. And as I said earlier, with that one truth established, the Roman system crumbles for the basis of the authority claimed by Rome depends upon the apostolic succession from Peter unto all of his papal successors. Without Peter as the rock upon which the church is built, the Romish Pope is shown to be the arch usurper of Christ's authority and rights. He is shown and demonstrated to be the Antichrist of Scripture. And so the cry to all who hear this particular truth, to all who are within the realm of this Romish church in the Scriptures, within this harlot, is come out from her, O ye, my people, Come out from her because it is a harlot and because it is Antichrist that sits in this particular temple. To flee her idolatry. To flee her, her false doctrine and worship and government. And to come to Christ who is the true foundation, the rock, the Petra, only Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, is a firm and certain and stable foundation upon which the church is built. Our salvation cannot be built upon any man. It is built alone upon Christ. Only His merit, dear ones, is sufficient to uphold weak, frail men, including Peter, all other ground is sinking sand. In fact, the very parable which the Lord told in Matthew chapter 7 about a house that's built upon, upon a rock, it's built upon a Petra in that particular parable. And, it's, and it withstands the flood, the storm, the the adversity, the calamity brought against it. It withstands it all, but the house that's built upon a lot of little stones, 
upon the sand crumbles. It falls. It's destroyed. Now, having established that Christ, the eternal Son of God, is the rock upon which the church is built, Christ promises to build His church when He says, I will build My church. Notice the personal possessive pronoun. My church. He doesn't say, I will build your church, Peter. He doesn't say, I will build your church, the apostles, but I will build my church. Again, I submit to you, dear ones, Jesus Christ alone is indispensable. It is His church. It is His cause. We need not worry. We need not fret. For the kingdom of God, it will go forward because Christ will build His church. He has promised to do so. And he cannot lie. He will continue to add to his church. He will build it. This is the church of true believers that is built upon Christ. That is the invisible church rather than the visible church of professing believers which contains both believers and hypocrites. It is the view of Rome that Christ here promises to build his visible professing church upon Peter the Rock. In the minds of Rome, dear ones, this particular verse, because it speaks of, in their judgment, the visible church, containing both professors or believers and hypocrites, in their minds, It justifies the fact that they are, in fact, the true church. Because as you look around you, what church is more visible than Rome itself? What church has extended its visible glory, as it were, its visible form throughout the world more than Rome? A billion members... They look to their visible size to justify that they are the church you're spoken of. And however, dear ones, just as hypocrites cannot be truly united as members to Christ the head, just as hypocrites cannot be truly united as branches to Christ the vine, Just as hypocrites cannot be truly united as a bride to Christ the groom, so hypocrites cannot be truly built as living stones upon Christ the rock. For unto this church that is spoken here, and this church alone that is built upon Christ, is it promised that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We know that, in fact, the gates of hell will prevail against visible professing churches composed of both believers and hypocrites. For visible churches have backslidden from the faith into apostasy. And the visible form of the church has nearly vanished due to persecution at various points in history, as in the time of Elijah. 
Now, this is not the church which is composed of Peter the believer and Simon Magus the hypocrite. This is the church of the redeemed, which the gates of hell cannot prevail against or overcome, which a flood cannot wash away and destroy, for it is built upon the rock, even Jesus Christ. Here is a promise that the church of all the redeemed in Christ, which stretches from Adam to the end of time, who are chosen in Christ Jesus from before the foundation of the world, will, be, will continue to be built, will continue to grow, and will continue to add living stones to it, but will have no living stones removed from it. It cannot decrease. It can only increase as the Lord continues to build and add to His invisible church. It includes the Old Testament believers, like those in Hebrews chapter 11. I submit to you that this is not a a text for dispensationalists who would argue that Christ here begins something new that he had not begun previously. This is not speaking of Christ beginning something entirely distinct and new. The Lord does not say, I will begin to build my church. I believe the emphasis rather with the future tense is, I will continue to build my church. Not, I will begin to build my church. In fact, just to illustrate that, uh, that the future tense, again, as I said, Put your thinking caps on here. We need to look at things very, very seriously when we're trying to establish certain doctrines. In Philippians 4, what's the emphasis of the future tense in this verse? Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, or literally, I will say, rejoice. Is the emphasis of the future tense there, I will say rejoice? Is it this, rejoice in the Lord always, and again, I begin to say rejoice, or I will begin to say rejoice? Or is the emphasis, rejoice in the Lord always, and again, I will continue to say rejoice? You see, the future tense can have the emphasis of beginning to do something in the future, the future tense can also have an emphasis of continuing something in the future that has already been begun. And here, when the Lord says, I will build my church, He is not saying, I will begin to build my church. Because, dear ones, His church was already being built in the Old Testament Scriptures. Does the Scripture speak of Christ as Israel's rock? Indeed it does. 
in 1 Corinthians 10.3, the rock there in the wilderness was Christ. Does not Scripture say that Christ was in His church of Israel there in the wilderness? Does it not say He was in His church? Yes, it does. In Acts 7.38, Christ was in His church. Upon what were the redeemed of Israel built? In the Old Testament, if not upon Christ, the rock of their salvation, as continuously the psalmist declares that the Lord, God, is the rock of his salvation. Was not the gospel preached unto the Old Testament believers? Galatians 3.8 Paul says that the gospel was preached to Abraham. And Paul says in Hebrews 4, too, that the gospel was preached to Israel in the wilderness. But they did not hear it and believe it. If Christ, dear ones, is the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world, is He not also the rock upon which the redeemed are built from the foundation of the world? The church, dear one, did not begin as an entirely new entity on the day of Pentecost. The kingdom of God or the church of God or the church of Jesus Christ, remember, was taken away from unbelieving Jews and given to believing Jews and Gentiles. When Jesus said in Matthew 21:43 that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. That is, the church will be taken away from you and given to a nation, another nation, that will bring forth the fruits that the Lord was looking for. Believing Jews and believing Gentiles. Christ came, dear ones, to rebuild the tabernacle of David. <clears throat> to rebuild the tabernacle of David, the, which is the house of of Christ. The house or tabernacle of David is the house of Christ, the greater David. In Acts 15:16, he did not come to build an entirely new tabernacle of David, but to rebuild that which was fallen down. So the Lord is not come to establish something entirely new, but to continue to build, to restore, to rebuild. You see, Christ has been saving believers throughout the Old Testament and adding them to His invisible church. And His coming will not bring an end. His first coming will not bring an end to saving His people, but will promote the building of His church, the building of His kingdom. Although the administration of God's covenant is different in the Old Testament than it is from the New Testament. The foundation of that body of redeemed believers called the church is the same. Jesus Christ, the righteous. Dear ones, here we are taught like Elijah of old not to place all of our confidence in what we see with our eyes not to be like Rome and say, we must be the right church, 
Look at, at our, look at our size. Look at the number of our members. Look at our wealth. We are taught to look at the purity and the love and the devotion which emanate from those who truly believe and follow the Lamb wherever He goes. We are taught not to trust in what man can build, but in what the Lord Jesus Christ builds as we look to Christ, the builder of the invisible church, the church of the redeemed. I don't have time to spend but just a moment or two on the second promise, the promise of, of protection. But let me simply make a couple very, very brief remarks before we close today. The Lord, in this particular passage, not only promises to build His church upon the rock of the Lord Jesus Christ, but He also promises that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That is, that the gates of hell will not prevail against this invisible church of believers, the invisible church of the redeemed. The gates of hell, whether that refers to, to the gates of Hades' death, that will not overcome the invisible church. For death cannot overcome the invisible church because they immediately go to be with the Lord. And there is a certain and sure resurrection to glory. The seed of the martyrs, dear ones, is only a way, or the blood of the martyrs is only seed to further true reformation. As we have seen throughout history, their death does not bring about the end of the church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. If that is the greatest enemy, as Paul says, in 1 Corinthians 15, the last enemy that shall be overcome, the final enemy is death, then the Lord will overcome all other enemies that may come through the gates of hell as well. They will not be able to overcome the invisible church. They will not be able to move even one single stone from those who are united to Jesus Christ. Here is our comfort that Jesus protects His invisible church. Can those who are part of the invisible church nevertheless fall into various forms of unfaithfulness and corruption? Yes, they can. But the Lord will not lose one. And He, dear ones, will continue to perfect and grow even those who are in His invisible church who have fallen away in various ways, ourselves included, in whatever ways we need to be sanctified, the Lord will continue to sanctify us. And so we need to pray with all of our hearts that the Lord will purify the well-being of the invisible church, that He will purify and sanctify the well-being of the invisible church, that they will grow in their knowledge of Him, that they will grow in the grace of Christ, wherever they are throughout the world. But the Lord will protect them. There are promises to that effect 
in John chapter 10, verse 28, where Jesus says, I'll start with verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. And then one last passage just to read is in Romans chapter 8, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here is a promise to lift the spirit when trouble assails us from every side. We may be knocked down, but we are not knocked out. The Lord has established us on a firm foundation. No flood can overwhelm us or subdue us. We are protected, preserved, and secure in Jesus Christ, who is our rock. Please stand with me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we do praise Thee. Thy Word does interpret itself. Thy Spirit does lead us, O Lord, to see, to understand that it is Christ that is the rock of our salvation and upon which the church is built. We thank Thee, our Father, that Thou hast given to us, Lord, this grace, for many do not see this truth. Many are, in fact, blinded to this truth. Many, O Father, are within the Romish church and under, O Father, the usurped authority of this Antichrist. And we do pray, Father, that Thou would call all of Thy people, all of those whom Thou hast chosen, out of that Romish harlot. We pray, Father, that Thou, in Thy grace, would deliver, Lord, even those who are of Thy invisible church, who are within unfaithful, visible churches, Lord. We pray, Father, that, that they might be drawn and to understand, to appreciate, to love sound doctrine and pure worship 
and faithful church government. O Lord, we pray that Thou would deliver ourselves from, from all pride and that, Father, we would continue to search our own hearts and lives. For, Father, we see that if we were ourselves not built upon the rock, we would instantaneously perish as well. And so, Father, we thank Thee for our Savior. And we pray that Thou would bring us all as Thy people to unity in doctrine, worship, and government. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.